This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama Live Long and Master Aging is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today, does the age of your brain or your brain age determine when you're likely to die? It's an intriguing question and to try to find out, I've come to Hammersmith Hospital in West London to talk to Dr. James Cole. James is a brain science researcher in the Department of Medicine at Imperial College based here at the hospital. Hi, James. Hi, Peter. Your study on this subject was published last month, Brain Age Predicts Mortality, and it attracted a huge amount of interest around the world. A lot of headlines. Did the level of interest surprise you? Um, Yes, it did, actually, yeah. We thought it was quite a catchy message, um, and we hoped we'd get some get some popular media attention. But yeah, it certainly outstripped what I was expecting and what I've experienced before. So well, yeah, it's very positive. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating. I want to talk about it in some detail. Just just before we do that, I say we're at Hammersmith Hospital here. This is where you do one of the great research hospitals in the UK. This is where you do a lot of your work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm part of um, a lab called the Computational Cognitive and Clinical Neuroimaging Laboratory, which is part of the Division of Brain Sciences here at Imperial College London. Um, and we do lots of different types of mainly neuroimaging research using MRI, um, positron emission tomography, uh, EEG, brain stimulation, transcranial magnetic stimulation, all sorts of different stuff. So, yeah, it's a good place. Lots of long words there. <laughs> what is your main area of interest? And uh, maybe tell me a little bit about what you've done in the past building up to where you are now. Certainly. So, I mean, very broadly, I'm, I'm interested in how... Um, the brain changes as we get older, um, but also how the, there's this kind of interplay between disease and ageing. Obviously, as we, as we age, we get more, more risk of lots of different diseases, but actually we don't really know what the difference between the early stages of a disease and an increased risk of a disease is. Um, and I think, obviously, a lot of those diseases that are important are, are brain diseases, particularly things to do with neurodegeneration, and that's what I'm interested in exploring. So... Generally, I've done a lot of neuroimaging research on different neurological or psychiatric diseases in my career. So I've studied, my PhD was studying um, major depressive disorder uh, and looking at genetic influences on brain structure and function in depression before looking, uh, moving on to look at Huntington's disease, which is obviously a very different, different case. There's a, there's a very interesting kind of genetically predetermined kind of risk for neurodegenerative disease. And then subsequent to that, moved to Imperial where I've been working both looking at traumatic brain injury, because we have a, a very good group here of researchers who do a lot of TBI work, both looking acutely and particularly at the chronic phase. And that links in with quite a lot of the stuff that's been in the media recently about chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, which is the idea that if you have repeated mild head injuries, you know, that might cause a neurodegenerative disease. And that's been very controversial in America with lots of payouts to American footballers and things like that. But alongside that, I've also been doing work on HIV. So there has been this idea that despite the fact that people who have 
um, HIV can now get access to very good treatments that actually really reduces the kind of morbidity of the disease and, and has almost sort of made AIDS itself in, in, in the Western world anyway a, a real rarity. Um, there is the concern that they have more age-associated diseases and there's this been this idea of uh, accelerated aging as being a facet of treated HIV. So I had the, the good fortune to be involved in, a, in an EU-funded kind of multi-centre study to look at ageing in HIV um, and I was engaged in the neuroimaging aspect of that to see whether people with HIV have kind of increased signs of, of brain ageing. And as you were progressing in your education in the early days, was there something about the brain or something about ageing that particularly fascinated you? I mean, I've always been fascinated by human behaviour, really. And so my first degree was actually in psychology. But I gradually came to, to realise that really, if we want to understand behaviour, we have to understand the mechanics and the, the biomechanics, really, of what's, you know, what's driving behaviour. For me, I, you know, I'm really interested in how we can use all these amazing techniques that we've developed to actually help people. And I don't think we have necessarily translated a lot of the research that's been done in neuroscience we haven't really translated that into a clinical setting very well. And ageing and age-related diseases is one of the big, big causes of, you know, mortality and morbidity. And it's, gonna, it's only going to increase as the populate, world's population gets older. So I think there's a, you know, there's a real need to kind of help us all age more healthily. Not necessarily make us live longer, but to make the years that we do have healthier. I think neuroimaging and neuroscience generally can play an important role in that. And, and, it, and I hopefully some of my research will help contribute towards that. Yeah, it's end. something that I talk about repeatedly, and that is health span as opposed to lifespan. Absolutely. Being the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so there is a kind of sort of science fiction-y pie in the sky, can we make humans live forever? But really, I don't think anybody particularly either thinks that's realistic or, or wants to do that. But certainly, as, the, as life expectancy has increased, you know, we need to make sure that those all those years can be as healthy as possible and people can lead rich, full lives for as long as possible. And as well as being kind of socially kind of noble thing to do, economically it's kind of essential as well because as the balance of the population shifts from being a, a pyramid with lots of young people and a few older people to kind of being the other way around with more older people than younger people, the older people need to be economically active because the younger people won't be able to support them financially. So there's a kind of a real need to to help that from a from mm. a practical perspective as well as a kind of social perspective exactly so the the brain age study i was actually talking to a friend of mine about this when we both spotted the story and his instant reaction was oh i must go online and do that test <laughs> i think a lot of people just from the headline mm. might have thought that but of course it, it it's much more than that it involves mris yes. uh, go back to the beginning uh, brain age what is brain age so the idea is kind of derived from the field of biogerontology, which I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with. But basically, um, the concept that you can, that, that people age at different rates. So some people get age-associated disorders a lot earlier than others. Some people live very, have very long health span, very long lifespan. So although chronologically they might be the same age, biologically, potentially things have been happening differently for a long period. And in the kind of biogerontology field, there's been the search for aging biomarkers for a long time. And these can be blood proteins, other products in the blood, or physiological measures, um, genetic measures, all sorts of things. 
So brain age is kind of a neuroscientific equivalent of that. There's a lot of research that's been going on for the last 10, 15 years which shows that the brain changes in a relatively characteristic way across the lifespan where you lose grey matter gradually from about the age of 20. The white matter volume of the brain tends to follow a kind of inverted U-shape. So you actually have increasing volume up to your mid-40s or 50s uh, and then it starts to decrease. Uh, and then the, ce the cerebrospinal fluid expands to fill with the spaces that are left by your, your brain tissue decreasing. And that means that we can actually leverage that information to predict how old people are from, the, from a brain scan. And this prediction is the, the brain age that we've called it. I didn't actually come up with the idea. A few people have used MRI data to predict chronological age in, in another context. And actually, in, the kind of, in this sort of applied context, the first work was done by a German group in 2010. And they actually, they actually kind of came up with it. They, they called it the brain age gap estimate or brain age. But so so the, the kind of concept's been around for, for a while. And I was very interested in, in come, kind of reformulating how you calculate it and then applying it into some different contexts. So who took part in the study and what did they have to do? Well, so this study, um, alongside quite a lot of my work, has actually not involved me collecting any new data. So it's actually taking advantage of the fact that in neuroscience particularly, people are, are much more open to sharing their data. So there are two main kind of data sets involved in this study and, and because it uses machine learning um, that requires uh, what, what we call a training data set where we basically define a statistical model within within a training data set. So this training data set was 2,000 healthy individuals and it was taken from all sorts of publicly available sources around the world. So some in a lot of lots in North America, but also Europe and, and China as well. Um, and these were all healthy individuals who had undergone an MRI scan, specifically a T1 weighted MRI, which gives you a very good image of the structure of somebody's brain in high resolution. So the only details we had of those people were their age and their sex and then their MRI scan. The other data set, the one that we actually did the sort of testing on, is called the Lothian Birth Cohort of 1936. That is a fascinating study that's run by um, Ian Deary and um, his colleagues in the University of Edinburgh. And it's a longitudinal study of older adults in, in the Lothian area of Scotland. And so you used essentially an algorithm to analyse the data that you managed to gather? Absolutely, yeah. We used, a, we used an algorithm called Gaussian Processes Regression, which is essentially a kind of multivariate extension of, of a simple linear regression to kind of map the relationship between brain volume in three dimensions with chronological age. And then once you've, once you've built that statistical model, you can then take a new brain scan which hasn't been involved in defining the model and then take the coefficients from that model apply it to the new brain scan and get a prediction of age and broadly speaking it's it's an accurate it gives an accurate prediction of chronological age from MRI data but the uh, the key point with this was that actually it's not about accurately predicting it it's about quantifying the discrepancy between the prediction and their real age so for the so for the people from the Lothian data set we know how old they actually are. They were all born in 1936, so they, th these were all MRI scans when they were around the age of 73. And we were able to basically see what the difference between their brain-predicted age and their real age is, and then use that discrepancy as a measure of their kind of age-adjusted brain health, and then try and relate that to 
other things that we know about those individuals. So cognitive function, physical, physiological function, and of course, mortality. And how much discrepancy did you find? What was the difference between the brain predicted age and the actual age? Well, on average, the discrepancy in the Lothian data set was just under uh, one and a half years. So given that, you know, the, the, the model is naive to all of the data, all of the, all of the Lothian data, Broadly speaking, it was predicting around 73, 74 on average for everybody. But there is a big spread in that. So I think the youngest would have been about 20 years, so perhaps early 50s, and the oldest would have been in their 90s, so about 20 years either way. But it's using, it's then taking that spread of data, the variance in the, in the discrepancy, and then analysing that, that, that actually gave us our really interesting findings. So an average predicted age of about 73? Yeah, about 74, yeah. 74. And, and these subjects were about 73? Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty accurate on So average. it's pretty close? Pretty close, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you read into this? In terms of the accuracy of the model, it, firstly, it's very reassuring that it works. You, know, you never know when you undertake these things whether you, know, you have a good hypothesis that it would work, but um, it's quite reassuring that you know, this data that's been trained on people aged 18 to 90 um, allows you to actually get accurate predictions in an entirely different um, data set. So in, firstly, that, that's good. What's interesting about the Lothian data set is that the, the, age, the actual age range of their chronological age is very, very narrow because they were all born in the same same year. And the fact that there is a big spread, but that's centered around the real kind of actual age, shows me that on average, we've got a good model, but that actually the variation within that should be of interest. So not that it's just statistical noise or error, but that it should be related to something meaningful. And that's that's kind of then we what we analyze next. Uh, so yeah, I was going to say, what, what is the next stage in this? Well, so the next stage after we, so what's great about the Lothian data set is that they have so much other data on these people. So first we decided to look at various different measures of aging fitness, which they've previously published on. So there are things like grip strength, lung function, and uh, walking speed, which are all kind of classic clinical measures of how, you know, how fit people are physically as they age. And it turned out that the discrepancy between your brain age and your real age was significantly related to all those things. So if you had a brain that was predicted to be older than your real age, you had, uh, you were, you had slower walking speed, weaker grip strength and reduced lung function. We also looked at cognitive function. So we have a lot of measures of fluid kind of cognitive performance, which have been deconstructed into kind of one single me- summary measure. That's significantly related again to the discrepancy. So it seemed that the older people had poor, the people who were, had older appearing brains had um, poorer cognitive performance as well. So that was that was very interesting. But then we moved on to look at the relationship with kind of mortality risk and, and how long these people survived. So what's what's also very interesting. So these scans were were done seven or eight or possibly nine years ago now. The health records of the individuals in that studies are linked with the um, Scottish Health Service. So the researchers in the project, which is still ongoing, get notified if, you know, sadly anybody anybody who takes part in the study has died. Approximately 10% of the people who had been scanned at age 73 have now died, um, That's and that's up to about the age of 79 or 80. And what we did is we, firstly, we, we sort of made some groups and we looked at 
if they had they were male or female firstly but also whether they were still alive or whether they had died and those who had died both within males and within females had significantly older brains but then we also used a more sophisticated approach where we actually modeled basically the time till death using a, a what they call survival analysis and it, it showed that their brain predicted age discrepancy kind of score was significantly related to how long they survived after the after the scans um, which is we thought was very interesting the reason we took that approach is because people have used that same statistical approach for other types of aging biomarker and in particular in the Lothian data they've used um, a technique called the epigenetic clock basically the idea is that by taking any cells but in this case it was it was blood cells you can look at the epigenetic profile so this is a something called dna methylation which is thought to change as we get older it, it controls how certain genes switch on and switch off and there is a statistical technique which allows you to take data from blood cells and predict how old people are so their dna methylation age previously that has been related to those measures of aging fitness and to mortality risk. So what we thought we'd do is see how their brain age related to their DNA methylation age. I was expecting it to be related, but in fact it was entirely unrelated. There was no correlation whatsoever. And we can be quite confident about that because this is in a study of more than 600 people. So we've got, we've got pretty good um, accuracy for this. But yeah, absolutely no relation at all. However... So what do you read into that? Well, so uh, what, what, I, what I read into that is that it's potentially evidence of what some people call the mosaic of aging. And the mosaic of aging is this idea that actually different tissues and different organs and different systems in the body can actually age at a different pace. And it could be that whatever exposures they've had, be they environmental or other genetic things, can affect the brain or DNA methylation in the blood independently and that there's not necessarily a relationship between those two things. Equally, you could you can use this uh, epigenetic clock to look at the age of, of other tissues. Obviously, blood is the most easily accessible, but they have done it post-mortem on brain samples and things like that, which I think would be, very, would be very interesting. But what was particularly interesting was that independently, the DNA methylation age and the brain age were associated with mortality risk. So if you put them together in a statistical model, that actually, because those two things are not related, that makes the statistical model more powerful. So it shows that by measuring aging in different parts of the body, you can actually build up a more complete picture of what their kind of true mortality risk is. We've still a long way to go before we actually can have, you know, real specific individual predictions of mortality risk. And um, my hope is that actually this is kind of motivation to start measuring the, you know, to combine lots of different measures of of ageing and actually try and build a sort of more a multifaceted model that might give us more information about how healthily people's bodies are ageing. Do you think, and clearly, as you say, there's a long way to go yet, but do you see this as a, as a possible routine test, an MRI in this way? Clearly very expensive. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem to be practical in the current state of health affairs that we live in, but uh, as a diagnostic test to, to help people, maybe to adv help doctors advise people on lifestyle, can you see that happening? I can see that happening, yeah. I can see that happening. I mean, clinically, MRI is used for scans of the, of the brain, you know, if there's an indication all the time. So I think it wouldn't be impossible that it could become used a bit more routinely. Obviously, there are things like people, whether they can actually have a scan, but 
because it uses big magnets, you know, if people have got bits of metal in their body, it can be potentially unsafe for them to have a scan. Obviously, if they're claustrophobic or have back problems, lying in an MRI scanner is not not ideal. But it is becoming cheaper. People are working on technologies all the time to make MRI cheaper. And the UK Biobank is a really good example of how economies of scale can be used to actually make MRI scanning. They've essentially halved the, the average cost of an MRI scan because they're doing it on such a large a large number of people. And I think, in theory, you could scale up the systems that we already have and, and, and get it done more cheaply and more, more practically. But yeah, there's still there's still a long way to go. On yeah, that. I mean, accepting that it, it's clearly not practical in the foreseeable future, but as an educational tool, building on the information that you already have from this study and presumably studies in future, to advise people about lifestyle and how those lifestyles affect their brain health. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think there's something quite intuitive about being told by a clinician that your an organ of your body is older than it should be. Um, and you hear it about people's smokers and their lungs yes, a lot. Yes, absolutely. Obviously. And you can go on the NHS website and you can fill out a brief questionnaire about your cardiovascular health and it gives you a heart age. That's a, it's kind of a colloquial way of doing it. But actually, you know, if, if you can quantify that uh, and measure it objectively, you can then get, you can get uh, much more precision. But also importantly, you can get a kind of confidence interval. So you could say to somebody, we think your brain is... 10 years older than your real age, plus or minus maybe four or five years. So at least you could actually, by using these kind of statistical techniques. Um, so you could perhaps devise an online test to determine your brain age well, based on some of the information you potentially, have. Potentially, yeah, potentially. But I mean, we're, you know, we're leave leveraging MRI data. So if people could get their own MRI scans and upload them, then, um, you know, then we could certainly automate that. But in terms of doing something that you could just answer a few questions I suppose you could come up with something but I think really for me what what's particularly interesting is that your brain is quite a sensitive marker of when things are going wrong in your body and keeping your brain healthy is important and having a good lifestyle is always going to be you know useful in that regard. So what I was going to ask you what are those lifestyle traits and behaviors that most affect your brain? Well I mean this isn't going to be anything new really to any of your listeners I don't suppose I mean there's good evidence to suggest that smoking uh, heavily reduces your brain volume Um, alcohol um, and other recreational drugs also reduce brain volume Um, there's also associations between having poor diet and lack of exercise having a high body mass index you know isn't necessarily isn't very good for your very good for your brain either so it's you know, the kind of the same sort of lifestyle advice that, that GPs give out all the time, probably. Right. But I, my hope, I suppose, is that um, if people think, well, not only is this affecting my heart and my waistline, it's also affecting my brain, then they, that might motivate them further to, to, to change, their, change their lifestyles. And it doesn't necessarily mean that if you give up smoking and you start being healthy, that your brain's going to become extremely healthy and that you're going to live a long and happy life but on the balance of what we know at the moment it's it's going to definitely increase the likelihood that that will be the case and of course um, something we haven't really mentioned yet alzheimer's which is increasingly yes. numbers of people are falling victim to alzheimer's disease yeah. this is an area that could really help i hope so yes i hope so there are already studies that have used this technique or, or similar technique done by other researchers that have looked at Alzheimer's disease and particularly the the kind of well-known risk phase for Alzheimer's called mild cognitive impairment and there's a very interesting study in in America called the Alzheimer's disease neuroimaging initiative 
that have shared their data and, and, and analysis has been done on that. We, and that's actually followed up people with mild cognitive impairment. And it shows that those who progressed to having Alzheimer's more quickly also had a increased brain age. So potentially you could use techniques like this as a kind of early warning detection of increased brain aging and is associated with negative outcomes. So you could use it potentially to kind of warn people that, that something might be happening. The other hope is that it could even potentially be used for trialing sort of therapeutics as well. Because one of the big problems with coming up for drugs for neurodegenerative diseases is that neurodegeneration is a, is a slow process. So the time frame for clinical trials is, is very difficult. And particularly if you want to treat people who are early in the course of the disease or potentially even asymptomatic, having a good way of measuring whether the treatment is working is very, is very difficult. So using MRI and, and measures of brain structure and function I think could be a really good way of kind of having a biomarker for whether the therapeutics are actually having an effect. And if we accept that this isn't practical for, for people en masse, perhaps targeting at those at-risk groups, perhaps people with genetic histories that suggest that they might fall victims mm. of some of these diseases, uh, you can see a potential for it there. I can, absolutely. Although, interestingly, we have, we have looked at that in a, in a study, um, again, with some collaborators, um, where we looked at individuals who have either this well-known risk gene, which is called the apolipoprotein E4, and whether they have a parental diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and these are all people who are in their 40s and 50s. And interestingly, that those with the kind of genetic or, or familial risk for Alzheimer's did not have a, an increased brain age. Oh, that's interesting. interesting. I just thought the opposite. I, that was, my hypothesis was indeed the opposite. But it turns out that in this case, it could potentially be that just studying cross-sectionally at this time point, you know, the differences, the discrepancies aren't, aren't clear enough and partly that could be to do with the technique is still a bit noisy you know there's still quite a lot of refining that we could do to try and bring in more information about how the brain changes as as we age but what's good about this study is that it will have um, longitudinal follow-up data so potentially the individual kind of changes in brain age might be more indicative of future risk compared to a kind of just cross-sectional, more broad-brush approach. So that's something we're going to look at in more detail. And also, presumably moving forward, you'll be attempting to close that margin of error. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And for me, the key for that is to use different types of MRI. So at the moment, we've just used this T1-weighted MRI to look at grey matter and white matter volume. But there are lots of other ways in which the brain changes as we get older. So um, we develop these white matter lesions, which you can get at using something called T2 MRI. But also you can use diffusion MRI to look at the white matter structure of the brain. So how the, the kind of the, the axonal cables, if you will, that connect up the grey matter and their structure changes as we get older. So incorporating that sort of data would definitely help. And maybe putting it simply, what, what is the difference between those MRIs? It's basically how you set up the parameters of the, of the scanner. So it's, these are designed by physicists and they will tune the MRI scanner in certain ways to be sensitive to different biological properties. T1 is, is, is a very commonly used technique in clinical settings as is T2 because you can get really nice high resolution images that can tell you where pathology is. Diffusion MRI is, is a more emerging technique, so it has been around for about 20 years, but isn't routinely used in many different clinical settings, although that is, that is changing. But it allows you to, to actually really look at the fibre structure 
of the brain, in, which is a, something that's really important for both how the brain functions, but also how the brain changes in the context of aging and in disease. Very interesting. Uh, at a personal level, knowing what you know from this study and from your other work, is there something that you apply to your own life, your own longevity? You've explained how <laughs> interested you are in the aging process. Yeah, good uh, question. I'm, I'm curious, uh, do, you, uh, do you listen to your own research? I mean, I try to be live healthily. Obviously, you get tempted by either being lazy or overeating or drinking too much. Or just being human. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I do, you know, I cycle a lot. I play football regularly. Um, try to recently tried to cut down how much meat I eat, that kind of stuff. So I do try and be be healthy. I think for me, probably like a lot of people, aging feels a long way off, and I sort of feel like, well, I'll you know I'll address it more in the future. But I suppose it's a bit like paying in you know your pension. You know, the the, the work you put in now probably pays dividends in the long run and, and you don't want to wait until t- to start saving for your pension when you're ready to retire you need to do it early do you mind so. me asking how old are you now? i'm 34. 34 34 so you're you're still pretty young i i like to think so although this is the oldest i've ever been so you know. <laughs> good answer and what i often notice from people in your position from different walks of life in terms of science whether it's brain research or, or diet or exercise i'm hearing the same answers to that question mm. you say you obviously try to exercise you cycle you're cutting down on meat which is increasingly something people are, are saying and especially mm. red meat which i think probably tells us something yes yeah i think i think there is a kind of acknowledgement i think from lots of different areas of research of the benefits of living living healthier and and kind of the ways of doing it and these sort of fad diets that come along they don't really help partly because they're very hard to sustain so actually i think by making small but long-term changes is probably the best way to to do it i mean and i've been quite lucky that i actually really enjoy exercising and i always have done i know some people don't feel that way but I think if we can encourage people to get out and exercise and to actually make it fun rather than those kind of grueling PE lessons that people remember from school in you know in the in the sleet in February um, to actually make it enjoyable and get people being made to sport. play football that's what I remember yes. uh, well I was very happy well, you when enjoy we were football, football. Yes. yeah well, that I was, was I was more of the long distance runner <laughs> to escape from the football right but we all have our own thing yeah and I think it's important that people who don't have their own exercise thing are encouraged to find it and I, and I really think that public spending should go into that because you know it's long-term thinking but you know if we have more sports facilities we have cheaper more accessible sports facilities we do more to make exercise enjoyable then that's going to help I mean there are so many kind of distractions that get kids or or adults to sit in front of their computer or sit in front of their uh, sit in front of a screen and be sedentary I think we really need to focus on getting people to get out there and, and that would have all sorts of long-term benefits it would probably reduce the cost of the NHS who so have to deal with age-associated chronic diseases in people who aren't very healthy you know it would save them lots of money in the long run if you could spend a bit now but that's long-term thinking and in terms of your own brain health do you notice things changing and, and are you doing anything specific to maintain your brain health I honestly say I wouldn't I, I haven't noticed any changes, actually. I think... I mean, if it's possible to notice changes... Yeah, I, I, I think suppose we think of difficult. memory, don't we? Mm. Which, which obviously changes as you get older. Yeah, memory, memory is the classic kind of um, marker of age-related cognitive performance. But actually, if you look at a lot of cognitive and psychological research across the lifespan, sadly to say that performance in pretty much every cognitive domain declines 
from about the age of 20 in a relatively linear way. People tend to think of it as being sort of on a plateau until you hit retirement age and then it starts to fall off. But actually, particularly things like your reaction time, how quickly you can respond to things, um, but also motor function and all sorts of other executive function, decision making, that all decreases in in performance as you get older. The only things that stay consistent are things like uh, language and long-term memory and sort of expertise-related things that are more sort of crystallized in the brain. But everything else tends to to, to, to be decreasing in a, in a kind of linear rate. But no, I don't think I do anything particular to maintain my brain health. I kind of, in some ways, I'm quite lucky working in an academic environment where I get to constantly learn new things all the time. And I know quite a few of my friends who, same age as me, who work in other environments that, you know, potentially very difficult, stressful, important jobs, but but they've reached a certain level where they're kind of at that middle management stage and they're not doing anything new. And sort they get of cruising bit, through. Yeah, yeah, they get a bit bored with that. And I think actually, you know, very fortunate to be able to do something where I'm constantly teaching myself new things. And, I, and I'm sure, I'm confident, although this is anecdotal, that being interested in learning and, 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 and being curious about the world is, is a good way to keep your brain busy. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. This has been fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. And if you are interested in reading more about James's study in some detail, I will share links to the original paper and James's website at Imperial College through our social media networks. If you'd like to comment on this interview or make suggestions for future episodes, you can contact us through our website at llamapodcast.com. You can also follow us and leave messages on Facebook and Twitter at LlamaPodcast. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.